Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we just come before you and we thank you for, uh, again, for allowing us to be here. Father, it should fill our hearts with joy knowing that we have not only fellowship with you, but fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. And we, we praise you for that gift. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it today in this time of preaching, uh, which you have commanded, uh, Lord, you have you have. Um, gifted those in the church to teach and preach your word and then to be a regular part of what we do as a church and we are to we are to feast upon your word regularly lord and I, I just pray that today we would do that father that you would work in each one of our hearts lord we want to become more like christ uh, lord if there's someone here who has not trusted in jesus father i pray that you would draw their hearts to you to the one who is the way the truth and the life through Him, we can have a relationship with you, and a, with you. And apart from Him, there is no hope of a relationship with you. Father, I just pray that you would um, work however you want to in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever done something that really made you stand out in the crowd? I don't necessarily mean always in a good way, just where you kind of felt like everybody is now looking at me and you just kind of wanted to get away. Uh, maybe you're a person that, that doesn't bother. Uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person I don't really like to. I kind of just would rather just kind of blend in, not make a big scene. And, um, and that, that's, just, that's just me. Uh, this past weekend, um, I experienced that sense of standing out in the crowd a pretty good bit. Uh, we, we were up in Boston and working with our church planter up there and and there were many times where I just kind of felt like I was out of place and I felt like people were watching and I don't I just don't like that feeling um, for one thing anytime you're going somewhere as a group it draws attention right even when everyone's on their best behavior just a group of people moving around together it just it just attracts attention and uh, and so I felt like that and then we didn't really know where we were going some of the times, and I was the leader, and sometimes I didn't know where I was going. And so not only are we moving around as a group, we're wandering as a group uh, in the subway stations, and uh, which they call the T. And, um, and so we're getting on the wrong trains and then having to get off, and then you're on, and you're pointing at the maps and attracting attention, and you're saying, I thought we were supposed to get off here. No, I think we're supposed to get off here. And I'm like, everybody's watching us now. Then you add on that our accents, right? Um, and, I, and I probably had the worst one of everybody, except maybe Amanda. And, um, and so we, uh, but, but I always feel like every time I open my mouth to say, I think we're supposed to go this way. Just my accent is going to draw attention. I'm going to stand out in the crowd. Not only that, but there was one day uh, where we were all wearing matching shirts, which I'm not a big fan of matching other people. I don't just mean like they, they, they looked good together. I mean they were the same shirt. You know what I mean? And so now we're a group with thick southern accents, not knowing where we're going, all wearing the same T-shirt walking around and so now I know all eyes are on us and then and I wasn't ashamed of this at all but just to add one more thing that would draw attention not only did we all have the same t-shirts on on the back is a big logo for a church which wouldn't stand out as much here but in Boston that draws attention says Kings Hill Church on the back of it um, that's the church that we're uh, partnered with up there and so 
I just felt like all weekend, especially that particular day, that we we just stood out. Uh, there was there was no way around, and I just had to be okay with that and realize all day today, all eyes are going to be on us, and uh, for better or for worse. And um, and so I just had to had to be okay with that. And why do I say that? Obedience to all of Scripture, but especially this passage. In the society in which we live in will, without a doubt, make us stand out in the crowd. It will make us stand out in our society. In other words, if we put into practice, if you put into practice the instructions that we have in our passage today, eyes will shift towards you. And people will say, I wonder what she's doing. I wonder why He's living that way. But we have to be okay with that. Realizing that that is exactly the life that God has called us to. He has called us to live in this world, but not to be of this world, and yet engage this world on mission for Him. And when we do that, we will look different than the world. And so before we even read this passage, we must, as Christians, be okay with that. We must see that as not the exception to the rule, but that is the rule of the Christian life. That is the normal Christian life. It's not the abnormal Christian life. It is the normal Christian life to look different than the world. And that will definitely be the case if we put into practice our passage today. We are called to be exiles on mission. If you will, direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Today we want to look at this mission of submission, husbands and wives. If you will follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The glad submission of wives to their husbands and the tender care husbands show their wives displays God's glory to a lost world. It displays God's glory to a lost world. And that's exactly what Peter is calling these Christians to do. If you'll recall that Peter is writing to Christians and he calls them elect exiles, which means they have been chosen by God to not belong to the world anymore, but to belong to God. 
And we read about that great salvation in chapter 1. We read about that standard of living, of holiness, the second half of chapter 1. We read about our incredible relationship with God and one another as believers in the first part of chapter 2. And then about halfway through chapter 2, Peter makes a transition in this letter. If you look back at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, you'll see that transition. And he urges us not to, not to walk in the ways of our flesh to abstain from the passions of our flesh that wage war against our soul. In other words, we're to run from sin. But if we're not to sin, we're to run from sin. What are we to run to? Well, verse 12 tells us that we are to run to a life that puts on display the glory of God for a watching world so that they will be attracted to that God and they will become worshipers of him as well. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good deeds, even though they may speak against you as evildoers, they will give glory to God on the day of visitation. We are called to live on mission. And that mission that he's writing about carries us from chapter 2, halfway through chapter 2, all the way through chapter uh, 4, verse 11. And, and, And as we look at that, we see two categories in this missional strategy, two ways that we live as exiles on mission. One is submission and one is suffering. We are called to submit and we are called to suffer. We're in the section where he's dealing with submission, though he's already thrown in some of the suffering theme as well. There were three specific areas that he called the Christians to submit in. If you look back at verse 13, we see that we are to be subject to The governing leaders, we can put it that way. Here he says to every human institution, whether it be to the governor, or excuse me, to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him. The second area of submission was submission in the realms of, uh, of, of household servants to their masters. We said one way we could apply that to us today would be submitting to our bosses, to those who are our employers. And that would be one way that we could submit that. Maybe a student to a teacher. Excuse me, one way we could apply that call to submission to our context. The third way that Peter calls specific submission, calls Christians to specifically submit is found in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he spends a few verses, six verses in fact, talking to the wives directly. Then in verse 7, he talks to the husbands. This morning I want to share with you four truths for wives and four truths for husbands. And our prayer is that this would help us look more like Jesus to a watching world. Truth number one for wives. Wives, your submission to your husbands points them to Jesus. It's interesting how Peter starts this section of his letter in chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter, like Paul, in other places in Scripture, calls the wife to submit to the husband. That is the role that he calls the wife to. This is a voluntary submission, a glad submission to the husband's leadership but what's interesting about peter when he writes this is that 
he gives this uh, he gives this phrase here so that even if some do not obey the word. Now, what in the world is he talking about when he says, even if some do not obey the word? We've seen in Peter so far this this way of referring to believing the gospel. And he calls it obedience to Jesus or obedience to the word. It's, it's Peter's way of saying, having trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. We saw that word obedience in chapter 1, verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And there we said it's not necessarily talking about our day-to-day obedience, but it's talking about our obedience to trust in Jesus for salvation. We could look at chapter 1, verse 25, and it says, This word is the good news that was preached to you. So this word is the gospel message. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 8, we find this phrase, they stumble because they disobey the word. It's not simply that they were living disobedient lives, but it was that they had failed to trust in the cornerstone who is Jesus. So this obedience to the word is a reference, a way of talking about believing the gospel. So now we go to chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so that even if some are not Christians. It's not talking about a disobedient Christian husband. It's talking about a non-Christian husband. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Well, why does Peter feel the need to, to say this? Well, it's probably also the reason why he devotes six verses and remember, he didn't write in verses, but a longer section to, uh, to wives than he does to husbands. The audience that he was writing to would have been made up of um, many women who had trusted Christ, but their husbands had not yet, and maybe would not ever, but hopefully had not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation. Now, that in and of itself was a subversion of the culture and the society in that day and time. It would have been wrong in that society for a wife to say, I'm going to follow this God even though my husband follows this God. In fact, you can read some of the writings from the Greco-Roman time period where it specifically says that a woman is not supposed to serve any gods that are different than the gods that her husband serves. And yet here, Peter is assuming that there are women who are married to men and these men worship the gods of the Romans. And yet these women, their wives, have rejected those gods and said, no, I am going to follow Jesus. He is my Lord. This is a radical statement that Peter is calling these Women, too, in these homes and these families in the church, too. This would have been unacceptable in that society. And yet he does not say, I'm sorry, women. If your husband hasn't trusted in Jesus yet, you shouldn't follow Jesus yet either. He is assuming that they have trusted in Christ and he does not discourage that He is giving them instructions on how to live out their faith in Jesus, even when their husbands have not trusted in Christ. And yet the way they are to do that is in glad submission to their husbands. Why? Remember the mission. Remember the mission. So that 
those who do not obey the word may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Notice what Peter's desire is and what his desire is for these wives to desire is that their husbands would be saved, right? And we can, we can rest assured that these new believers, these women who have trusted in Christ, they want nothing more than their husbands and everyone else around them that doesn't know Christ to believe in Jesus as well. Peter says the way that you're going to do that is by your conduct, by your behavior. Now, this doesn't mean that they were to keep their mouths closed and never to speak about Jesus to their husbands. That would be living in disobedience to the commands of Christ. God has called us to share the gospel with people. But we can assume that these wives have probably already done that. Because when you trust in Jesus, the first thing you want to do is tell somebody, especially those closest to you. So it's probably assumed that these wives have already shared with their husbands verbally why they are not going to the temple and worshiping these false gods. So now, what do they do when their husbands still have not believed in Jesus? Peter says, you live a godly life in front of them. And unless it means being disobedient to God, you submit to the authority and leadership of your husband in the home. And as you do that, our prayer is that they would be one without a word. They would... Believe and obey the word of the gospel without you bugging them and pestering them and beating them over the head with Jesus night and day, night and day, night and day. He's saying that's not going to that's not going to attract them to Christ. That's probably eventually going to drive them away from Christ. So make sure they know what you believe and what the gospel is and then just live out your walk with the Lord daily in front of them. And it's going to look different than those around you. But you do it anyways, because you desire for your husband to believe. Number two, wives, your submission to your husband displays submission to God. We've seen this theme throughout this whole section of submission, that our submission to earthly authority whether that's the governing authorities, whether that's the authority of a, of, a, of a master or a boss or a teacher, or whether that's the authority of a husband in the home, it's all rooted in our submission to God. Notice what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to put on display respectful and pure conduct in verse 2. And it's supposed to be visible like they're supposed to live out this respectful and pure conduct in such a way that it can be seen by the eyes of their husbands. This word respectful is really the word fear. And we saw this in the last passage as well. Really, it's you could translate it this way. Live with pure behavior in fear. Well, what is he talking about? In fear of who is he telling the the wives, are they supposed to be fearful of their husbands? Absolutely not. We can see that down in verse 6. He tells them not to fear anything that is frightening. So what does the word fear, often translated respect, in verse 2 mean? Well, it's talking about our fear of God. And he said that over and over in this letter. Their submission flows from their submission to God. 
an act of obedience. And as they obey God in this, not being scared, not being fearful of their husbands, being fearful of the Lord and not doing what he's called them to do, it will put on display for their husbands and the watching world what it means to live a life taking your direction, taking your orders from God. And when we take our directions and our orders from God in life, we live in a peaceable, kind, loving way that attracts people to the gospel of Jesus. This is also where we find the, the exception to the rule. And we've seen throughout this submission section in, in Peter that there is an exception to the rule. We never submit to an earthly authority when submission to that earthly, earthly authority would require us to disobey God. And so where do we draw the line in the sand for submitting to, to governing authorities? Where do we draw the line in the sand when we submit to earthly uh, bosses, masters, teachers? Where, where do we draw the line in the sand, wives, when you're submitting to husbands? If the one in authority calls you or commands you or asks you to do something that would mean you would have to disobey God, then you draw a line in the sand. Because this submission to husbands falls underneath the category of submission to God. Number three, wives, your submission to your husbands requires a redefinition of beauty. Your submission to husbands, to your husbands, requires a redefinition of beauty. Verses 3 through 4. Do not let your adorning be external. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. A redefinition of beauty. Now, please note here. Peter doesn't say, don't adorn yourselves. He actually commands these wives, to adorn themselves. What he does is he redefines what is beautiful. You see, the temptation for us, whether you're a wife or a husband or you're a child or, or, or whoever you are, the, 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 the temptation for us always is to look good in the eyes of the world. Yet we've been called to live holy lives before God. In other words, what should matter most to us is how God sees us, not how the world sees us. And that's exactly the, the, the principle that he's applying specifically to these wives here in this passage. Well, we, we know this truth of God even from the Old Testament. You know the story of Samuel and he's on a mission to find the new king, right? He goes to the house of Jesse and Jesse brings out his sons and, and he looks at the oldest one and Samuel goes, certainly that's the right one. I mean, he's big and strong and he's the oldest and he's the firstborn. And God says, nope. And then God says, nope, for the second one. And God says, nope. And he goes all the way down the line and God says, nope, to all of them. And then and then Samuel goes, Jesse, uh, God keeps saying no. I've kind of put this in my own words. But this is what happens. God, God keeps saying no. Uh you got any other sons? Because God said as one of your sons. And, and Jesse's like, well, I got the, the, the runt. Right? He's the youngest. He's, he's out there in the fields watching the sheep. Samuel says, well, bring him in. God says, that's the one. And Samuel's sitting there going, the prophet. He's like, what's going on here, God? And God says this really profound statement. So truthful in our lives and something we have to be reminded of over and over. 
God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And here, Peter is simply taking that truth of God from the Old Testament, applying it into the context of wives submitting to their husbands, and he calls for a redefinition of beauty. He doesn't say stop adorning yourselves. He says stop focusing so much on the external adornment that you're missing the internal adornment that God has called you to, something that lasts far longer. It has a greater value. What is this right kind and wrong kind of adornment? Well, he says, don't let the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear be that which adorns you. Another question then comes, does that mean we can't do those things? It's a sin if I braid my hair. It's a sin that I have on earrings. It's a sin if I wear clothes. There, there you go, right? That, that's how we know that it's not a sin to do those first two things. Because if it was a sin to do those first two things, then that would mean he's calling us to not wear clothes. And we know that he's not calling the wives to not wear clothing. So what is what's he saying here? He's saying, don't let what makes you attractive be that which is on your outward appearance. Focus more on the inside. Let your adorning, let that which makes you beautiful to God, and don't forget the context, to your husband, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Imperishable. Something that has lasting value. All that jewelry is going to fade away. The fancy hairdos have to be redone. The expensive clothing will one day wear out or you'll spill something on it. Or your kid will spit up on it. Or it'll not fit one day. Those things don't last. But the temptation always is for us to look good in the eyes of the world. And to place lots of value on that. But notice what God places value on. Look at, look at how God describes this. In God's sight is very precious. That word precious can also be translated costly. So what he's saying, he's saying trade in all the costly externals for the costly internals. Those things that have real lasting value and worth in the sight of God. We've already seen this fear of God, this pure conduct in verse 2. In verse 4, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I've been blessed in, in my life to have been around women who, who have, I think, modeled this so well. And, and this is one of those things where maybe as I get older and read God's Word more and smarter with God's Word, um, I'll be able to give good definitions and what this looks like. But this is one of those things where you... You don't you don't really know what it is until you're around it. And then you go, that's it. (laughs) Just think about those in your life. Maybe it was a mother. Maybe it was a grandmother. Maybe it was an aunt or a friend. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe who you fill in the blanks. But there's probably a Christian lady in your life where you go. That's (laughs) that's what Peter's talking about. Like that. That's what it means to, 
to have a gentle and quiet spirit. I say I've been blessed in my life. If any of you know my mom, to me, that is, that is a, as close to a perfect picture as you can get of what God is calling wives to right, right here in this passage. And then if that wasn't enough, God blessed me with a wife that I think models this as close to perfection as, as you can get. And still be a sinner. And I would say that if she was here. She would call herself a sinner as well. We, we, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. But, but she, she does this so well. So the best thing I can tell you if, you, if you really want to know what this looks like, spend some time with my mom or my wife or those ladies that you were just thinking about. And it really is something that's so attractive. It's also something that points people to the glory of God. Because the only way that you can have these imperishable values inside of you, ladies, is if you are living a life surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These beautiful qualities of the, on the inside, this hidden heart, this person of the heart, uh, the, this beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, they don't happen naturally. They happen supernaturally. When Jesus saves you from your sin and your selfishness and you're able to live selflessly in service towards others, it puts on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does this look like in real life? Just as I've thought about this and thought about our society, and maybe, maybe it just means this. Maybe it means spending more time trying to look like Jesus than trying to look like a model on a magazine cover. Maybe, maybe it means spending more time comparing yourself to God's standards for your behavior than the world's standards for your looks. Perhaps it means spending more time preparing your heart for the day through Bible reading and prayer than preparing your face for the day through putting on your makeup. Perhaps it means spending more time gazing at the holiness of God than gazing at yourself in the mirror or these days on the selfie mode on your phone. Maybe it means spending more time being quiet before the Lord in prayer and posting those selfies on social media. Perhaps it means spending more time being concerned about the sin in your life than the humidity that's messing up your hair today or all summer in the South. Perhaps it means spending more time filling your life with good deeds and acts of service than filling your jewelry box with more gold and silver. Perhaps, perhaps. Can't think about this passage in First Peter without thinking about Proverbs chapter 31. And there we find these words, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Truth number four for wives. And we'll close with this today. Wives, your submission to your husbands puts you in the company of holy women. 
I like this one. I like this one. Not that I don't like the others, but this is just a cool, cool thing that Peter puts in here as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He gives some examples, right? I tried to give some examples in my life, but Peter gives some biblical examples. Your submission to your husbands puts you in the company of holy women. Notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah, here's their example, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now we can have some fun with these two verses. I've already had some fun uh, talking about them with my wife. And, and, um, and, and I said, so you know what this passage means? It means that you need to start calling me Lord. <laughs> Hadn't worked yet. <laughs> I said, it's in the Bible. But she's smart enough and wise enough to know that that's not what Peter is commanding here. That was a way of speaking to your husband then that conveyed uh, respect and conveyed submission. But we don't we don't use that 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 word um, as much in our day and time. We really don't use it much at all. Um, and, and so that's not it's not it's not a command to use that word and. Referring to your husband. What it is a a command to do is to look at these women in the past and how they submitted to their husbands and see that God was honored by that. And say, here's what it looked like for them. What does it look like for me? Also realizing, I think it's helpful to remember the story of Sarah and Abraham. Abraham's the father of faith. But Abraham is not the father of perfection. He's the father of what it means for God's grace to save someone. Abraham made some really dumb, really foolish decisions. Some decisions that that really put Sarah in in a in a um, not just a difficult place, but dangerous place. And and this isn't even a command that say, look at her. She submitted even though it was dangerous. That's not what he's saying. Just saying that, remember Sarah was, was married to a, to a human man. He wasn't perfect. But just notice that in this particular instance that he's referring back to, it was just kind of in passing that she just called him Lord. It's just kind of like the way that she referred to him. In other words, it was just a part of her everyday life that she lived in submission under her authority. But notice how he describes these women of old. Not old women, Right? But women of old. The difference there. He says that they hoped in God. That's important. Their hope is not in their husband. Their ultimate worth and value and meaning and purpose in life was not coming from their husbands. Whether they were a Christian or not a Christian, their hope was in God. And again, remember, that was basically illegal (laughs) in the context, in the society in which this was written. It was was an underhanded subversion of that society and that culture. And yet it was to be a, a subversion that was done in a kind and respectful way. But their hope was not in their husband. Their hope wasn't in the gods that their husband served. Their hope was in God. Their hope was not in themselves and their ability to do this. And that would lead to great discouragement. 
Because we're not perfect. And these wives weren't perfect. And they weren't going to be perfect. And their obedience to this command, their hope was in God. That means they were standing firm on the truths of who God is. That He loved them. That He was caring for them. That He was going to make a way for them to be obedient to this command. That He was going to carry them through to the end. Their hope was in God. They were characterized, as we said, by submission to their husbands. They were characterized by doing good. Notice what he says, and you are her children if you do good. Lives filled with good works towards their husbands, towards their children, towards their families, towards their church family, towards their community. If you do good. And this last description is they were fearless. It says, and do not fear anything that is frightening. We are never called to fear humans. We are only called as Christians to fear God with a reverent respect that leads us to obey Him no matter what people may say. She was not to be fearful of others' opinions about her submission. And there would have been many of those, as there are today. She was not to be fearful of her husband's opinion, of her Christian beliefs, if he wasn't a Christian. Proverbs 31.25 says this, Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She's fearless. Why? Because her hope is in God. Her hope is in God. And therefore, she is able to live out the submission. If you want me to give you a definition of submission, I'll, I'll do that. Um, the voluntary and joyful choice of the wife to follow the leadership of her husband as an act of obedience to God. The voluntary and joyful choice of the wife to follow the leadership of her husband as an act of obedience to God. Submission is not something that is popular in our society. First Peter is a letter that is not popular in our society. Often when we think about submission, well, maybe not you, but when I think about submission, I think about a wrestling match. That's what I think about. I think about two guys duking it out on the mat in the ring, and finally one of them, Causes enough pain to the other one that he does what? He taps out, right? He submits. He submits. Why don't you think about that submission? That submission is forced. That submission is a mark of shame. That submission is a sign of weakness. And that submission is a last resort. You don't, you don't tap out until... A bone's about to snap or your windpipe's about to be crushed. That's, it's a last resort. That is not the kind of submission that Peter is calling wives to here. This submission is voluntary, not forced. I don't mean it's optional for the Christian women. I mean it's not something forced on them by their husbands. It is something they choose to do out of obedience to God. It's not forced it's voluntary this submission in this passage is not a mark of shame it is a mark of honor as someone 
who was seeking to live their life for the glory of God in the context of their home. This submission is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. Proverbs 31 just says strength and dignity are before her. It says that she's fearless here in 1 Peter. And this submission is not a last resort, but it is a first priority. As a wife who is seeking to live their life for the honor and glory of God. All right, wives. We're not going to let your husbands off the hook. But we'll save that for next time. As we close, I just want you to think, wives, how does, your, how does your life compare to this? What might need to change so that your life looks more like this passage of Scripture and what God is calling Christian wives to? Husbands, what are you doing to help your wife live this way, not hinder her? from living this way. Chew on that for a while. And even even for those who aren't married, even for, for, for some of our teenagers in here, teenage ladies, girls, young ladies, what are you doing right now to be focusing on these inner qualities? so that you can be this person that God would call you to be one day. Women, what are you doing to model this for our young ladies in our church? That, that applies to, to all of our women in here, whether you're married or not married. How are you setting an example of focusing on what's on the inside rather than what's on the outside? To our young men, this is the kind of woman that you want to look for. Let's pray. Father, if we live this way, we will not be popular. But Father, you haven't called us to be popular. You've called us to be holy. Father, you've called us to live on mission. And Lord, we can rest assured that while the watching world may scratch their heads and may even call us names for living in accordance with your word, Father, we will be putting on display your glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ for people who desperately need to be rescued from their sin. And so, Father, out of obedience to You and out of love for the souls and compassion for the souls of those around us who don't know You, help us to put this into practice. Father, I pray specifically for, for wives here today. Father, I, I just pray that You would give them strength and the courage, and the fearlessness, and the hope in You, and the humility before You, and reverence for You. 
put these truths into practice in their lives. Father, for the husbands in here, pray that we would do all we can to make that an easy task and not a difficult task for our, for our wives. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel of Jesus that allows us to be able to live holy lives for You. Lord, if it weren't for You saving us from our sins, we would not be able to live in accordance with Your Word. But as we read in the previous passage, Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. So, Father, help us to remember the cross. And as we remember and rejoice in the cross, Father, may it cause us to live righteously before You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.